0: Our scripture from the New Testament, the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. Let us hear the inspired, unerring, infallible, eternal word of God. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Iodius and beseech Syntectici that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace Shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned, in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, He sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Our attention this evening to the fourth chapter of Philippians. And particularly focusing on verses 4 to 9. As we come to a text like this one before us, try as we may, there's no way to escape its rebuke. I confess that by nature, I'm not a happy person. But Paul knew what it was to be truly happy. This book, in many ways, is the loveliest of all of Paul's epistles. The themes of joy and peace run thick throughout the letter. The themes which are so much a part of Christian jargon, but yet so often elusive to Christian experience. And it's not without significance that this letter, that is so infused with Christian happiness with Christian joy and peace was written from prison. That itself tells us up front that the kind of joy and contentment and, dare I say, happiness that Paul is addressing in this letter is completely independent of life circumstances. Paul knew that there was nothing in life that could separate him from the love or the presence of Christ and nothing could rob him of the contentment that was possible when faith overrides sight. And Paul wanted his converts in Philippi and he wants us now to learn to live in the experience of all of our spiritual possessions and to take advantage of gospel grace. I think so often we are like those spies that Moses sent out to examine the land of Canaan. And they came back with a report that, yes, this is everything that God said it was going to be. A land that was flowing with milk and honey. And here they brought even the grapes testifying to the bounty of the harvest. And they looked at that and they examined that from every angle. But yet they did not go in to possess the land of promise. And I think so often we as Christians will look at all the blessings that we have in the gospel. We'll consider all of these remarkable truths of our doctrine, of our confessions, and we admire them. But yet so often we fail to enter in to the full enjoyment and the full experience of all that grace has intended for us to have and in this closing chapter then of philippians the apostle issues some imperatives some commands for christian living and how to live in such a way that we are conscious of the presence of the god of peace nestled between instruction at the beginning he's dealing with some personal conflicts and at the end of the chapter he's dealing with some circumstances but sandwiched between the personal conflict instructions and his testimony of how the lord was faithful to him in the various circumstances of life we have these dues these commands these imperatives for christian living paul could do this by precept as well as by example You'll notice at verse 9, he says, Those things which he have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. So Paul was living not just in theory, but Paul was giving to these people what he himself knew to experience. I tell my students often that as ministers, as preachers, that we can only give to others from the overflow of what we ourselves have taken in. And while that is true, I must confess that there is much in this text that is addressed to my own heart and to my own soul. Not just theory, but I trust that as the Lord has spoken to me and rebuked me, that the Lord will have a word for us as well the imperatives for living in the presence and enjoying the presence of the God of peace. When will we learn? When will we learn? Our catechism defines the Christian life in those three broad heads, our misery. Oh, we like to dwell sometimes in our misery. But from that misery, from that fearful pit, and from the miry clay, he set our feet upon a rock. And there's the deliverance and the gospel that takes us from that death in Adam to the life that we have in Christ. He delivers us. And then, in light of that deliverance, we have the gratitude and the thanksgiving that ought to characterize The Christian life, a life that has been transferred from misery, from the miry pit to the rock, who knows that deliverance ought to be filled with praise and thanksgiving and gratitude. The Christian life looks like something, and the Apostle Paul in these few verses gives us a glimpse He gives us directives as to what the Christian life ought to look like as an expression here of our contentment and our joy, our happiness, call it what you will, our experience of the peace of God. And there are four key imperatives that I want to draw your attention to this evening. In verse 4 we have the first, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice, twice in this one verse. The command is given to us to rejoice in the Lord. Here is the duty, that's the first thing that we can observe here, that rejoicing in the Lord, this unfailing joy, is a duty that belongs to those who have been delivered and are now in Christ. It's a duty. And therefore, because it is a duty, not being joyful and not rejoicing is not just too bad, and it is too bad, but it's disobedience. It is disobedience not to rejoice in the Lord. Now this verb, rejoice, you can't read the book of Philippians without being encountered with this reference to joy, to rejoicing. Eleven times the verb occurs, In this relatively short epistle, the noun form occurs five times. It is part of Christian living that must be taken seriously. But what is it? What is it to joy? What is biblical joy? What is this biblical rejoicing, this biblical happiness, if you will? The key idea is not emotion. It's a sense in which our emotions change and our emotions fluctuate depending upon the circumstances before us. And as part of life. This word rejoice has the idea primarily of being content. Has the idea of being satisfied. To find our contentment and our satisfaction, it is an attitude of the heart, of the frame of mind, more than an expression that may be on the face. It's a realization that everything is in the hand of God. To be content. Paul expressed that in the passage after our text, that in whatsoever state I am, in whatsoever state I am, I've learned to be content. Oh, and there are all kinds of circumstances, ups and downs in his experience, but he learned to be content. And it is that contentment. It is that heartfelt satisfaction in the Lord that is the essence of what rejoicing is. To be content with what is. And to stay content when that what is changes into something else. And that leads to the second observation here about rejoicing in the Lord. The duration of this unfailing joy. Always. And if that's not enough... The verbs that the apostle uses here express the idea of a constancy, habitualness of that action. We could translate it this way. Be constantly rejoicing in the Lord. Be constantly rejoicing in the Lord. Habitually rejoicing in the Lord. And if you miss that, then you do it always. That's the rub. Is that rhetoric? Or is that reality? It's not difficult. It's not difficult to be content in the sunshine times. But what about when the clouds become part of life? And this would be an unreasonable demand if it were coming from someone who knew nothing of the clouds. But this is from Paul. This is from Paul who at the very moment was in chains. At the very moment he's telling them and telling us to rejoice in the Lord, to be content with the circumstances of life. He's in prison, he's in chains, bound up for the cause of the gospel. Paul knew what trouble was. You go again to verses eleven and twelve. Have been abased, been abounded, been instructed, been full, been hungry, all these things. So you read Second Corinthians. Read 2 Corinthians particularly, and Paul will make reference there, chapter 12 or so, to to all of the events that happened to him. Scourged, he was scourged, he was shipwrecked, he was hungry, he was in fact. All these things, all these things. But yet it is that one that went through all of those circumstances that is able to say, in whatever state I am, I rejoice in the Lord. I'm content. I'm content. We may lose the stuff of life. Circumstances change. There's prosperity, prosperity and adversity travel a two-way street. It's a great verse in Ecclesiastes that I would say is my favorite verse, but it's the verse that rebukes me so often. Chapter 7. The preacher says, in the day of prosperity, rejoice. That's not hard to do. It's not hard to rejoice on those days when everything is going well. Not hard to rejoice in the sunshine days. But he goes on. In the day of prosperity, rejoice. But in the day of adversity, consider that God has set the one against the other to the end that we might find nothing after him. And I'd put a capital H on that word him in your Bible. God puts the adversity and God uses the adversity and he juxtaposes that adversity right smack up against the days of prosperity to teach us what it is to depend upon him. To find our contentment and to find our satisfaction, not in the stuff of life, but in Him. But in Him. And that's the secret. That's the secret of this unfailing joy. It's in the Lord. Don't rejoice in the circumstances because they can be tough, they can be hard. We can be the hard providences that are part of God's providential leading for sure. but it's in the Lord that we find the contentment, that we find the satisfaction. I say circumstances change. Prosperity and adversity, as I say, travel a two-way street. But the Lord's changeless. Again, you go to Ecclesiastes in chapter 3, there's a time and a purpose for everything under the sun. And then you have that whole series of times that are listed there by the preacher. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to laugh, a time to weep. A time to gather, a time to collect. All of these opposites that put together teach us that all of the circumstances of life, all of these extremes, are in the hand of God. For the conclusion of all of that is that He has made, He has made everything, King James translates, beautiful in its time. And that word beautiful has the idea of appropriate. That God has made everything appropriate in its time. Weeping times. Laughing times. Birthing times. Dying times. Collecting times. All in the hand of God. And it's our relationship with him. That is unalterable if we are in Christ. For the Lord does not change. We can lose the stuff of life. We can lose the stuff of life that momentarily may put a smile on our faces. But we can never lose Christ. And that's why He's the source and the reason for true joy. Joy is found in that... Checkbook of faith. Remember how Habakkuk closes his prophecy. Verse 17, he talks about all the difficulties. Fig trees aren't producing fruit. The olive trees are failing. The fields are not yielding anything. The flocks have been cut off. The stalls are empty. Those are hard providences. Those are not happy times. But yet he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like hinds feet. He'll make me to walk upon my high places. Notwithstanding the hard providences, there was the joy and the contentment in the relationship with the Lord we sang a few moments ago from Psalm 37 delight thyself on the Lord delight thyself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart don't misapply that I've known those that will come to that verse and Say, well, I'll delight in the Lord first, and then I'll get whatever I want over here. Delight in the Lord, and that will be the instrumentality by which I get something over here. They're using God. God will not be used, you know. God is not an instrument in our hand to be manipulated. It's not that we delight in the Lord to get something else over here. The language is clear. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What are the desires of our heart except that which we delight in? It's the Lord himself. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will not disappoint. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will not frustrate you. Those that wait upon the Lord will never be ashamed. Oh, there's contentment remember Paul again when he was appealing to the Lord concerning that thorn in the flesh prayed Lord take this thorn away from me hard providence Lord he prays again take this thorn from me hard providence He prays again, Lord, take this thorn away from me. And the Lord says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. What an encouragement that is. But yet I say what a rebuke that is as well, isn't it? Is God's grace sufficient for us? Is God's grace sufficient for us? So the first imperative, rejoice. In the Lord. The second imperative we find in verse 5. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. If we're going to follow this imperative for joy. We have to reveal selflessness to others. Reveal selflessness to others. Let it be known. Let this be known. Let this be manifested to others. Your moderation. Moderation perhaps gives the wrong impression. We tend to use the word moderation to talk about some limited indulgence to what could become a potential vice. But that's not the idea of the word. The word has the idea of forbearance, has the idea of gentleness, of patience, of goodwill. Let your gentleness be known unto all men your forbearance known unto all men. It's the very opposite of contention. Ancient Greeks defined this word as something better than justice. It's a word that describes Jesus. It's a word that describes Jesus' relationship to men. James talks about Divine wisdom that is pure, that is peaceable, that is gentle. That's the word here. Easy to be entreated. It's selflessness. It is selflessness. It's a virtue that contributes to peace. It's a virtue that contributes to our enjoying the God of peace with us. The Christian art. I can put it in those terms. It's the Christian art of giving way. It's the Christian art of esteeming others more highly than we esteem ourselves. Just flip back to chapter 2 of Philippians and you have those very words that the apostle gives. Verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind, that mind, be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. It's a mark of grace. It becomes a mark of grace to give up our perceived rights. It's a mark of grace to be willing to set aside our personal preferences. It's the grace of sweet reasonableness. This is tough. This is a tough one, isn't it? Because all of us, all of us by nature are selfish. All of us by nature are more concerned about ourselves. But the Lord instructs us to be selfless, to be more concerned for others, to hold others in higher esteem than we hold ourselves. This is not sacrificing principle. We like to put it in those terms all the time. We want to, I'm not going to sacrifice my principles, and we're never told to sacrifice principles, but we are told to sacrifice self. We have different opinions on a bunch of stuff. Different opinions on a bunch of stuff. Even here in this congregation, different opinions on a bunch of stuff. Be willing. Be willing to esteem others more highly than you esteem yourself. Have liberties. It's by freedom. Okay? But the Bible instructs us that if you think you have those liberties and those freedoms, be willing to set those aside for the welfare of others. Love seeks not its own. Selfishness will never breed joy. If our concern is for self, there's always something else that we think we need to Satisfy self. Self gets in the way. Self gets in the way. Of our enjoying the Lord. Of our rejoicing of our experiencing the peace of God. And the motive for being unselfish. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. That can either be a spatial term or a temporal term. And there's certainly a sense in which the coming, the second coming of the Lord Jesus is a motive for our purity. John tells us that those that have this hope purify themselves, even as he himself is pure. There ought to be, because of the certainty of the second coming of the Lord Jesus, that which maintains and fosters and motivates a purity in our lives, ought to be. But I think the context here is more spatial than it is temporal. It's the nearness of his presence. Let your gentleness be known. Show your selflessness. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, because he is near. The believer, do you realize what a wonderful truth this is, that as believers we are living in the environment... Of Christ. And Christ is in the environment of his people. It's impossible. For believers to be alone. He's the head. We're the body. The body has no existence apart from the head. And the head will not be without the body. There is a union. That exists between Christ and his people. He is the environment in which. We are to live. And if we can live with that consciousness. If we can learn to live with that awareness that we are in the midst, in the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's here tonight. We gather together in Jesus' name. He is here in the midst. It's going to affect the way we conduct ourselves. It's going to conduct. We're going to conduct ourselves, hopefully, in a way that is honoring to him and not displeasing to him. We're not going to give up anything. Have the idea that if I give that up, I'm going to lose something. You never lose when you act like Jesus. You never lose when you live in the reality of his presence. No fear of losing prestige or position. All that's going to disappear if we're aware of the presence of Christ. The psalmist says the Lord is nigh. He's near." Unto all that call upon it. So let your moderation, let your gentleness, your selflessness be known to all because Jesus lived that way and He is here. And there is part of thanksgiving living it is part of gratitude living to mirror him we are saved as believers to be in Christ is to be conformed to his image to be selfless is to be like Jesus Then the third imperative we have in verses 6 and 7. Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Here's the imperative that we are to relax In the safety of peace. And this relaxing is hindered by worry. And this is where Paul begins. Relaxing in the peace of God is hindered by worry. And he says stop worrying. Be careful for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Be worrying about nothing. Is the idea. And here particularly is where I feel the greatest rebuke. For the most part, for the most part, I do okay with what is. But it's my conjuring up, it's my conjuring up all that could be that very often tends to cripple my joy. What if? You ever play that game or is that just me? What if? What if this happens? What if this? What if this? What if this? And we get ourselves so tied up with all the what ifs that we miss out on the joy of the Lord. I remember my grandmother... And this was, this apparently has been a fault of mine all my life. I remember my grandmother telling me, what you worry about never happens. What you worry about never happens. I interpreted that, well, okay, let's worry about it so it doesn't happen, which is not quite the application that I think she had in mind. But it robs us. Here are the critical issues. Here are the critical issues of my job. Here are the critical issues of my family. Here are the critical issues of my nation. What if? What if so and so? What if this? What if? What if? What if? So easy for our minds to stampede out of control and kick up dust of doubt. It obscures the application of the word that we know to be true. Somebody said, worry is the interest we pay on the debt of unbelief. And the faith ends when or where anxiety begins. And Paul says, quit it. Just quit it. Be careful. Be anxious. For nothing. And this relaxing is attained through prayer. Prayer becomes the antithesis to worry. Prayer is always going to be an index to how much we depend upon God. And there's part of our jargon. Oh, I'm depending upon God. Okay. How much do you pray? Prayer, I say, is going to be an index to the level of our dependence upon the Lord. Faith knows that our concerns are His. And that we can roll all of our cares and all of our anxieties unto Him. Prayer. Several different terms. For prayer in verse six. Prayer, the general term. The ability just to talk to God. To talk to God about anything. Knowing that as we talk to Him about whatever it is that we are worrying about, whatever the concern is, that He hears, that He cares, that there's not going to be a one-upmanship, if you will. You know what I'm talking about? You find some friend very often and you begin to share your burdens and your concerns, and sometimes it's not unusual for them to try to help you by letting you know that something worse has happened to them. I remember when my folks were alive and they had lived in a little retirement village? In Florida and a daily conversation among those that were there. How many pills do you take? Well, I take more. How many surgeries have you had? Let's compare the length of our scars and see what. Always one up, always one up, something better, something worse. But that's not God. God with a sympathetic ear. God with an ear that is attuned unto the conversation of his people will hear supplications. There's the specific matters for which we appeal to God. And we ought to be specific. So often we pray, we we, we say things without saying anything. Even in our prayer. So be specific as we lift our concerns and our anxieties. This is how we deal with worry. Then we make our requests. There's the details. Again, nothing too big, nothing too small. He cares. And we do with thanksgiving. That ought to be a universal characteristic of all of our prayers. Gratitude. Submission and prayer becomes a means of our becoming content with the will of God. When Jesus taught his disciples and taught us to pray, let thy will be done. It is not the purpose of prayer to get God to change his mind. It is not the purpose of prayer to somehow get God to conform to what we want. No, prayer becomes a means whereby our wills become conformed to his. Let thy will be done. So we pray. And this relaxing then is enjoyed by peace's operation. Look at that wonderful statement of peace of God which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It's a peace that keeps. A peace from God is described variously and differently in the Scripture. Christ gives us peace as a legacy. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, he says. Peace is the fruit of the Spirit. But here it's a garrison. That word keep is the idea of a garrison. It's a military term. And peace is standing guard over our hearts. It's a peace of God that is standing sentinel, like a sentinel over our hearts. It's looking out for us. It's standing constant, vigilant, patrolling our hearts. Looking out for. Reminds me of the 23rd Psalm. Have that table prepared. In the presence of the enemies. The table is a symbol of peace. The table is a picture of reconciliation, of peace, and you eat, it's a peaceful setting. But here is this table that the Lord prepares for His people that is in the very presence of the enemies. And you can look around and we can see all of the hostile forces all around us. But here's the peace of God. That is patrolling. The peace of God that is standing guard. That is a garrison. It's his gift. It's that peace that passes understanding. Something so precious. We can't contrive of it ourselves. This is not just positive thinking. It's not make believe. We entrust ourselves into his loving hands. And he calms the heart. He calms the heart. He says to the soul, it's okay. And this relaxation centers in Christ. You can't get away from Jesus. You can't get away from what it is to be in Christ as a believer. Shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus that will keep him. The prophet says that will keep him in perfect peace. Literally, there is peace. There is peace to those whose minds are fixed, that are stayed upon Jehovah. Sweet, peace abiding. That's our portion as Jesus is precious to us. One final thought. One final thought concerning these imperatives for joy, and that is to reflect on good thoughts. To reflect on good thoughts. Finally, brethren, verse 8, whatsoever things are true, Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think. Be thinking, habitually thinking, constantly thinking, unceasingly thinking on these things. Christian living does not occur in a mental vacuum. Right thinking about the gospel produces right living in the gospel. Right thinking. Any thinking is going to, in one way or another, affect our behavior. It's a law of life. It's a law of life that if you think about something long enough, you can't stop. Thinking about it. Thoughts create. This is not technical language, obviously. But there's a sense in which thoughts create a groove in the brain. From which it is going to be hard to jerk things out. So therefore we must guard our thinking. We must think rightly. Think rightly. What do you think about? What do you think about when you're not thinking? What comes to your mind when, as it were, your mind is blank and there's nothing that's caught recalling your... T- what do you think about when you're not thinking? What comes to your mind? There are six things here that the Apostle outlines for us that ought to groove our brains. That ought to groove our brains as believers. Where our thoughts will immediately go when not thinking about something else. Each of these are potential servants, and I don't have time this evening to address them in that way, but simply to say this, that each of those terms Each of those terms find parallel and find application to the Lord Jesus himself. So can I just group all of that together? Group all of these virtues together and simply say, think about Christ. Fill your mind with Christ. Think about him, that one who is most excellent in every way. That's what's going to guard the mind, and that's going to bring us into the experience of the God of peace. So, Paul has given instruction, careful instruction. He's provided concrete examples from these that were in conflict one with the other and his own circumstances. And in our text he has commanded a conscious performance of those things because he says what you have seen, what you've heard, what you've learned, do. Do. This is the experience. This is what ought to be the experience of every believer that has been taken from that fearful pit. Delivered by the power of grace. Delivered by the efficacy of the sacrifice of Christ. Ought to be the duty then. To rejoice. To be selfless. Not to worry. And to have this unblemished mind that is filled with Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. So can we translate this beautiful truth into action? That we individually might know the joy of the Lord, that we individually might know and experience the peace of God that passes all understanding. And that we as a church would then reap the benefits of that spiritual blessing. I say a text that is not filled with deep doctrine. There's no deep doctrine. No deep theology but very practical, experiential applications that ought to speak to our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen. O Lord, how thankful we are for thy word which speaks to us at so many levels. The psalmist says that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. That thy revelation is so complete that it addresses every need and every circumstance of our lives. Lord, what a blessing we have when we look at the gospel. May those that have been delivered and who are in Christ, may they not only examine and not only Admire the great truths of the gospel. But to come to live in the reality of them. And may those that are still dead in Adam. And dead in their trespasses and sins. Who live in this sin cursed world. And have every reason. For fear and for doubt and for worry. O Lord. Cause thy spirit to awaken them. To the beauty of the gospel. So here are prayers. Cause the Spirit to use the word for his own glory. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.